Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwinunu. We all watched the Chinese spy balloon saga unfold over the last week. And Jill and I wanted to bring you some more context on what the larger story is here. Today, we present the first part of our interview with Josh Rogan. He's a Washington Post columnist who has covered China for years, has some incredible sources over there, and has a book out on Chinese-U.S. relations during the Trump administration. You may have seen him on CNN. Uh, You may have read him in the Washington Post or Politico or a number of the other publications he worked for through the years. In this interview today, we talked to Josh Rogan about what that balloon incident really tells us about the larger U.S.-China relationship. It comes against the backdrop of 10 years, at least, of worsening relations. And so I think all of you will get a lot out of this podcast edition, the larger story, the context, the history, what you guys come here for. If you take away one thing, this is much larger than just one balloon. You're watching the two biggest economies in the world, the two most powerful countries in the world that are totally intertwined, but have two completely different political systems, different philosophies, learn to manage one another, while importantly, avoiding war. So you'll get a lot out of today's podcast, I think, and then more out of part two later this week. A reminder before we get started to review this podcast, reviews really matter in your podcast app, so really appreciate that. And follow or subscribe to the show in your app so you don't miss a single episode. With that, part one of our interview on all things China with Josh Rogan. All right. All right. Josh Rogan is a friend of the Mo News podcast. He's incredibly well-sourced on all things China as a columnist for The Washington Post. He is also the author of Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. That came out in 2021. Previously, Josh has covered foreign policy and national security for Bloomberg, Newsweek, The Daily Beast, and a host of other publications. And most importantly, he's a fellow GW alum, Josh. (laughs) Oh, yeah. What year did you graduate? I was 04 undergrad, 06 masters. Gotcha. So I was a senior when you were a freshman. Josh, we're so grateful you're spending time with us today to break down the balloon and all things U.S., China. And by the way, we should note to everyone, you're on paternity leave right now. So appreciate you taking a brief moment and and being awake at this hour. Well, thank you for giving me a a break from paternity leave, or I guess I should thank the Chinese Communist Party for uh, (laughs) sending the balloon too low. You know what I mean? If they would just have kept the balloon higher, I would still be changing diapers right now. But thank you to Xi Jinping and the both of you for giving me a reprieve from that. And, you know, Mo, Mo, there's no way you could have known this, but since you brought it up, that last year at GW, I don't know if you remember, was the 2000-2001 year. That that should have been your freshman year. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the Hainan crisis, okay? That was when the U.S. spy plane, the EP3 spy plane, crashed on Hainan Island. They got too close to China, and they sent some fighters up to screw with it and it crashed with a, a bunch of Americans on it and they captured it. They wouldn't give back the play. It's the exact predecessor to this week's crisis 22 years ago. And I happened to be at that time an intern for what was then the House International Relations Committee, which is now the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And my job was to be the researcher on that crisis. I got there. I was an Asia expert per se, you know. So Josh, what you're telling us is uh, spying between US and China has gone on for a while. Yes. And uh, context is important here for those of us who discovered or those of you who discovered last week that China has been spying on us. It's been going back and forth for a while. Right. Right. So so it's like if we could keep just like two thoughts in our head at once. One is that on its face, anytime you're shooting down someone's spy plane and then it's like on the news, that's an incident. That's a a, a short term crisis in the U.S.-China relationship that's worthy of discussion. And I'm not saying it's not. Okay. yes, we. 
they're spying all the time. But when you get caught, that's a big deal in and of itself. The problem, I think, with all the coverage of the media over the last week and uh, and what we're, I hope I'm going to try to uh, correct a little bit on your show today is that, you know, we've given that 100 percent of the coverage and zero percent of the coverage to the bigger part of this, which is that the secretary of state canceled his trip to meet the president, the general secretary of China, which was supposed to be the way that we set a floor on this ever worsening U.S.-China relationship and avoid the Cold War II and, you know, avoid the Thucydides trap and all that nonsense. And that's not happening anymore. No one's talking about that. It's like we're talking about the tip of the iceberg, but there's this huge iceberg that we're still headed towards that we, like, everyone just brushed off the Santa trackers. They're like, oh, here's the balloon, and now it's over the Mason-Dixon, and now it's over the Hoover Dam. When that, those kinds of details are interesting but ultimately useless absent the context and the strategy and the diplomacy that is really what's going on in the world right now well that's what we try to do on this podcast we try to provide context we try to we read between the lines <laughs> no so you I don't know, have that. to that's <laughs> our <laughs> catchphrase yeah no it's really valuable actually because it, you know you don't have time in a cnn segment to unpack these things the way that they should be in in an honest way. no but you try your best i watched your six minute cnn segment josh so, good work there so let's set the table here as we tape this it's monday afternoon february 6th it's just actually literally in the next couple of minutes it's been 48 hours since the u.s shot down a chinese balloon just off the coast of Myrtle Beach, about six miles off the coast. Right now, my understanding, uh, based on reading the latest headlines, they've salvaged some of the parts of it because it came down in a shallow area, sending that to the lab at Quantico right now. The Chinese are vowing retaliation, whatever that means. The tensions are already high, spying, Taiwan, COVID, cyber hacking. As you just mentioned, the visit of the U.S. Secretary of State was canceled. So let's set the table here, what we know on Monday afternoon, Josh. What if we watch take place over the last eight days or so? Okay, so the context, as simple as I can lay it out, is this. You know, the Biden administration came in after four years of Trump versus China, which is exactly what my book, Chaos Under Heaven, is about, paperback available now. Uh, That ends when the Biden administration comes in. So they came in and they found a U.S.-China relationship at the lowest point since World War II. I mean, really horrible, at least the lowest point since 1972. And they thought to themselves, what do we do about this? And they came up with a plan. The plan essentially was that they were going to cooperate, compete, and confront China at once, that they were going to build three lanes of the U.S.-China relationship. And we're going to compete with them where we have to, economics. We're going to cooperate where we can, climate change, and we're going to confront them where we have to, human rights in Taiwan, et cetera. And they brought this to the Chinese. The Chinese were like, no, we're not doing that. We don't like that. We don't agree to that. We think all these things are linked. We're not going to work with you on climate change unless you drop all of your human rights sanctions. And Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Joe Biden were like, we can't do that. So then after another year, they came up with another idea. The second idea of the Biden administration's China policy was guardrails. They talk about it all the time. You guys read their speeches. They're saying it all the time. We need guardrails on the relationship. And what do they mean by that? They're like, okay, well, at least if we can't cooperate and compete and confront, we can at least take the the most contentious things that are going to piss each other off and start crises and take those off the table and try to manage this thing. So at least if it's going to get worse, it gets worse more slowly. And the first thing that happened then was the Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan and blew up the guardrails. OK, and that I'm not saying she didn't have a right to do that. I'm not saying that that wasn't the right thing to do. I'm just saying it really the Chinese were like, oh, forget the guardrails. That's not a thing. So now we're on the third year of the Biden administration's China policy, and there's a whole region out there, a whole world out there looking towards Washington, looking towards President Biden to lead on this 
the biggest issue in foreign policy in our lifetime, which is how the international community deals with the rise of China. It's not just about the U.S. and China. It's not a Cold War II. It's the international response to China's rise and our ability to protect ourselves where it affects us, okay? And that's a very hugely complicated thing. So their third year plan was, we're going to put a basement. The basement, this is the basement. So what's the basement? Okay, well, the basement is better than the guardrails. It just means we put a floor under the thing so it doesn't slide into the conflict that neither side wants. And the way that they were going to do that was first Biden meets with Xi, which they did in Bali, and then Secretary Blinken goes to Beijing, kind of does a nice thing for them because like, it's, it's kind of like he's like you know going to pay his respects, which is fine. And then the day before, they pull this nonsense, okay? Now, I talked to senior Biden administration officials throughout the, the crisis, and their explanation, their take, their analysis is very simple. They said that the Chinese overplayed their hand. They said that you know, they thought they could do this kind of a provocation. Not that it was an accident, in other words. Not that it was, oh, the guy who runs the balloon went rogue. Nothing like that. The best guess right now for people in the know is that, oh, they thought, oh, Blinken's on his way. We can do the provocation. He's not going to cancel the trip. We'll get away with something. And it'll be kind of a little bit of an FU. Now, in fairness, we do that to them, too. But they miscalculated. And it's not that they miscalculated on their side. They miscalculated on our side because they didn't realize that According to the Biden thought and the Biden perspective, they were willing to pay a huge political price to give this concession to get this reset. In other words, one quote was from a senior Biden administration official. This is a new quote. He said, they thought we were so horny for a reset that we would look the other way. And then hmm. he said, we, we want a reset. We're just not horny for one. Okay, that's a direct quote from the senior Biden Wait, so the feeling you're getting from that your makes sources sense? is... is that, are, you, are, you catching, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Yeah, but the, so your feeling is, and the feeling in the administration is, they wanted to be caught. China wanted us to see this balloon and wanted to see whether we were willing to basically suck it up, take it, and still meet with them. Exactly. They were testing us, and they miscalculated because it blew back in their face. And then they're like, oh, no, I'm rubber, you're glue. Anything you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Now, it seems pretty clear that on the Biden side, they were willing to let it go until it became public knowledge because they knew about it days in advance. And because the truth is that these things happen all the time and this whole like and they, they knew it was going to be they were going to get hit by the Republicans no matter what they did. And they took a relatively amongst the range of options, hawkish option, which is to shoot it down. That's clearly a hawkish option because it, it, it's, it's something of an escalation, to be sure. OK, and they did that for political reasons because they don't want to get outflanked on the right. But the Republicans are going to bitch and moan no matter what you do. But if they hadn't shot it down, they would have taken a worse political hit. So they made the political decision. What the Chinese didn't understand is that that was the they had to do that. Biden is not he's willing to take a little bit of a hit for getting accused of kowtowing to Beijing, which I don't really think is fair. But now politics is not fair. But he wasn't willing to take this much of a hit. So he because we're both sides, in a sense, are constrained by their domestic politics, by in the Chinese in a different way, because it's factional and because it's everyone's in the one party. But we have limits to what our systems will allow our leaders to do. And in this case, they miscalculated that Biden would just eat on this, and he didn't. And so it, it, it created a crisis. Now, what I think is that, if you're asking my opinion, and I think you are, is that that crisis, it, again, is the tip of the iceberg. The problems in the U.S.-China relationship are the iceberg. And all we're talking about is that crisis. You could fix the crisis. The crisis will get fixed. You know, they'll do some sort of symbolic retaliation, then we'll look the other way, then some calls will get made. I'm sure those calls are already getting made. And they're like, okay, this is how this will end. The Pelosi crisis similarly petered out. But the problem, the iceberg is still there. And that's what I'm talking about 
you know, the structural problems in the U.S.-China relationship, which is, to my mind, the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is expanding militarily and building a thousand new nuclear ballistic missile bays and missiles and, you know, taking over islands in the South China Sea that don't belong to it and committing a genocide and hiding the origin of the coronavirus and menacing Taiwan and cracking down in Hong Kong and building an Orwellian social credit system and, you know, using economic aggression to screw over our high technology industries and stealing our data and all that stuff. That's the U.S.-China relationship. It's nothing to do with a balloon. The balloon is the least of my worries. Okay. And we, I just, like, I did two CNN hits on the balloon, but I was like, what about all that other stuff? Like, oh, we don't have time for that. Okay. And that's the problem with Washington is that on the left, it's sort of like, they don't want to get outflanked. And on the right, it's like they'd rather have the issue than solve the problem. And so, yeah, it's a better issue for Republicans, but it gives them an incentive to just make it more partisan. And then there's the progressive left, which for very justified reasons is concerned about the effects that a march toward a Cold War would has on Asian Americans and Chinese Americans. And that's a separate but linked issue that's has there are real concerns because, of course, on the far right, there is a racist and xenophobic character to some of the rhetoric. So putting all those pieces together is the mission of the of our society to confront what's a very complicated challenge, but we're too consumed to organize on this thing. And that, I think, is our biggest weakness in the uh, the fight that is to come. The concern among Republicans, and I imagine it'll come up in additional hearings, et cetera. I mean, you, you explained it as a, it's a no-win situation for Biden. He shoots it off uh, over land and it lands on somebody and kills an American or damages something. That's a problem. Shoots it up over water. He waited too long. In the meantime, you know, it went over a bunch of sensitive military sites. At the same time, the military has said this has happened before. It happened a couple of times during Trump. That became a whole to-do over the weekend of Trump saying, I didn't know about that. Um, interested in, in in your take on that. But more significantly, you know, what do we know so far in terms of what officials are telling the media about what China was able to glean from this balloon that they can't glean from the thousands of other ways they already spy on this country? One of the, what I consider spurious criticisms coming from the right uh, right now is they say, oh, well, the Trump administration uh, they didn't do this during the Trump administration. That's what Trump said, right? They didn't do this to us. They did that to the Biden people because the Biden people are so weak. And then the Biden people leaked to the media. Oh, no, this happened three times in the Trump administration. Then they called all the Trump guys like Pompeo and and Esper, they said, oh, we, and, yeah. and, Esper and, and Rick Grinnell and like Robert O'Brien. They're like, oh, well, we never heard of that. And then the Biden people are like, oh, well, maybe they didn't tell you. OK, and that seems like a mess to the lay reader. But because I happened to write a book from inside the national security machine during that time in about U.S.-China relations, I feel confident making the following statement, which is that in that in, and because I wrote the book on this and I never heard of any balloons, by the way, in all of my reporting. And I'm reporting on very secret stuff. So what I'll just say is that one the Trump administration was a bureaucratic disaster, okay? And it makes perfect sense that a lot of important people had no idea that something important had happened, okay? Because it was a mess. It was a clown car in many respects. And there were many times where the military wouldn't tell the civilian leadership things because they didn't trust what Trump would do with that information. Exactly. You you beat me to my second point because that's, you're, you're absolutely right. They were at war with the intelligence community, okay? And for all of the Russia, since Trump, the intelligence people didn't trust the Trump people speaking of the Wuhan lab stuff, with the real information because they thought they would politicize it. And then the Trump people would confirm that by politicizing it. And it was this endless 
you know, cycle of, of, of drama inside the intelligence has been well reported on. And so this could have easily fallen through the cracks. So absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. What I can tell you from my own personal reporting that I often catch a whip. I'm not an intelligence reporter. I spent 15 years as a sort of a, a foreign policy reporter, national security, but not an intelligence reporter. That's not my specialty. That's my disclaimer. But what I'll tell you is that living in that world for the last 20 years, I'll often catch uh, chatter. Okay. And the chatter is something like this. Hey, Josh, I work at Space Force and let's call this a hypothetical, you know, for the sake of uh, (laughs) the story I'm about to tell. Let's say you got a call. Hey, Josh, I'm inside of Space Force. The Chinese just shot a laser at one of our spy satellites and damaged it. And we're all scrambling to repair the damage and everyone's keeping a lid on it. We're not telling Congress. We're not telling the White House because nobody wants that. Whatever happens after that happens. And then someone like me would go around and try to confirm that. You can't confirm it. It's all top secret. You can ask everybody, you know, if the White House doesn't know, we're Washington reporters. We're kind of lazy. We, we know a certain amount of people. But again, if you're not an intelligence, so then what happens? The thing just goes into the ether. So that, that's a regular occurrence in Washington. It's, it's, it shouldn't surprise anyone that this could be going on and we just wouldn't know about it. And then, of course, when it, the thing is in the sky in Myrtle Beach and people are snapping videos of it, okay, well, now we got to talk about it. And everyone gets out the fainting couches, okay? And here come the fainting couches, and everyone's clutching their pearls and fainting on their couches. Oh, my God, the balloon, the balloon, the balloon. But again, let me I, – I mean, it drives me crazy, to be honest, but I went to Tokyo three weeks ago. I, that was the only time I broke my paternity leave. I broke it twice, once – to do your show and wants to go to Tokyo. We feel, I got a call. we feel very special. Thank you for that. Well, no, I mean, listen, it's because this is really important and you, you guys are, are like really a perfect venue to sort of sort through complicated things that, you know, need to be understood by more Americans, more regular Americans. The problem with the China debate is it's confined to China hands and they're insular and they got this thing wrong. But anyway, that's a separate story. So I went to Tokyo, interviewed the prime minister. That's why I went there. And he told me that Japan is doubling its defense budget over the next five years, doubling from 1% to 2%, making it go from the ninth biggest defense budget in the world to the third, okay? And you know what? This was before the balloon. Nothing to do with the balloon. He didn't know about any balloons. Why did they double their defense budget? Because they're worried about the thousand nuclear missiles, not the balloons, okay? So everyone on in the in both sides were like, balloons are the new threat, just stop. You know, it's, it, it's okay. Like, it's interesting. It's a good story. But what about the thousand missile sites? That's my point. That's what the region is worried about. I think that's uh, what we should be doing more to prevent. And, you know, what I mean by that is that we need to increase our deterrence to send clear signals to the Chinese that their aggression won't be met by our withdrawal in the world. And that's done in conjunction with our partners and allies and hopefully in time to save Taiwan. Just a quick follow up to what Moshe was saying, though, and then I think we could move on from the balloon. Sure. Was there anything intelligence-wise, that the Chinese were potentially able to gather? They were over nuclear sites in Montana. Is there anything that they were able to gather that we should be concerned about uh, with this balloon that's different from other ways that they've been spying on us? You know, you don't want to say definitely not, because there's no way to ultimately say definitely not. And But we would be naive to think that they didn't have massive, massive amounts of information on all of their sites through a variety of methods, including human intelligence, including cyber hacking, including satellite. It's not just including intercepts. They have the world's second biggest intelligence community in the world after hours. Okay. They're spending tens of billions of dollars. They got hundreds of thousands of people in the Ministry of State Security working on these problems. 
And if you're asking me if the if the balloon is that we go, oh, now we got to worry about it. No, we should have been worried about it the whole time. I'm sure many people were. And does the balloon add like a point one to that amount of information? Maybe it's, you know, I don't want balloons flying over my military sites. I'm not saying it's it should be ignored. Not at all. I'm just saying in the context of the grand scheme of things, it's a very minor, minor, minor part of the threat. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. You're listening to our interview with Josh Rogan, Washington Post columnist, All Things China. He's the author of the book, Chaos Under Heaven. If you're looking to go deeper into the subject, we'll have more from our conversation just after the break. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors this week. Let's start with a game changer in the daily vitamin and supplement space, Athletic Greens. I've been using their AG1 supplement since the fall. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy, quick, and lets you get on your day knowing that you've gotten more than 75 important ingredients, tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support your gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. While there, you can get a monthly subscription that's discounted or just try it for one month. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for a special deal that will really start to let you take ownership of your health. All right, another partner this week I want to tell you about is Apostrophe Skincare. If you're tired of just hearing the solution to great skin is just drinking more water and you're looking for more help, this platform is an incredible resource. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with expert dermatologists to get customized treatment for your skin. It's very convenient. Apostrophe can help you on your road to a solution for a number of things, including adult acne or dark spots. It's simple to use and can be done from home. You answer several questions, snap a few selfies, and a board-certified dermatologist will create an initial customized treatment plan for you. They have a special deal now for the Mo News audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash monews using our code monews. Simple as that. It's a savings of $15. To get started, again, just go to apostrophe.com slash monews. It's apostrophe, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E, apostrophe.com slash monews, and click to get started and you'll get your first visit for only $5. And of course, China already um, spying on us through TikTok, which Americans willingly download, owned by a Chinese company, ByteDance. Millions of Americans, particularly young people, spend hours a day on this app. How big of a threat is that to American security? It's kind of become the en vogue thing to talk about now in D.C. Until the balloon, until the balloon. Right. <laughs> but is that really a threat? And how could China potentially be using the information that they get from TikTok against the United States? I think it's a great question because, again, I think the TikTok issue in our, gets politicized and then put into this frame of, oh, well, they're spying on our kids dancing. You know what I mean? And like, are we really worried about them spying on our kids dancing? And then when you get to the next sentence of the conversation, it becomes, oh, well, are they turning our next generation into sort of dictator loving, you know, mindless jellyfish who can't like learn or, or think? And like, then you get to the next sentence, oh, are they taking all that data to feed their machine, their machine that's meant to make their technology better and to increase their ability to do mass surveillance and, and in turn do mass repression. And the truth is that that's, to my mind, is the most dangerous part of it, is that it's it's not... Now, there is a lot of Chinese propaganda on TikTok. I'm on TikTok, to be full disclosure, because I want to understand. I'm not, you know, I'm a reporter. I'm trying to figure out what I'm talking about. So I spent a lot of time trying to, just trying to understand it and reading about it and talking to experts and 
yes, I do think there's a threat. How much is debatable? And part of it is the same threat that we have from our own social media, which is that our data is being used in ways that we don't control and are not understanding of. But there's it, there's a difference. Like to all of those people who are like, well, doesn't Facebook take all your data and sell it? Yeah, but they're doing that for money. The Chinese Communist Party is doing that to advance a party state surveillance suite of tools that they're going to export to countries all over the world that are going to eventually that are right now contributing to a genocide of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang that are used to monitor every Tibetan, every Hong Konger. And rest assured that if that kind of technology is allowed to proliferate, it's going to come a knocking at our door. And these are in Congress, it's all screwed up because, you know, privacy on the Internet is a partisan issue kind of in and of itself. And, you know, Facebook and those companies are a good whipping post for both parties. So it's it's hard to grapple with TikTok without grappling with that, but they're actually two different things. And the tr- the company's track record of transparency is frankly atrocious. And they keep getting caught saying things that either don't make sense or turn out to be true about the access that the Chinese government has to the information, okay? And just one more thing is that, like, you know, when I wrote this book, there was this crazy story of Steve Mnuchin trying to broker a deal for TikTok. And he brought in Oracle because Safracast, the CEO. This, of all right, so was, just for context, yeah. Steve Mnuchin is the Treasury Secretary under Trump. Right. And this is when TikTok first became a target in the Trump administration. Right. So remember, the Trump administration banned TikTok. They actually, they filed an executive order to ban it. And TikTok took them to the U.S. courts and the U.S. courts overruled the ban. So they lost it. The TikTok used lawfare, the American legal system, to defend itself. That's how our system works. That's that's what's different about our society is that we have processes and institutions. Now, in Trump world, they don't really care about that. They're about destroying those processes and institutions in many cases to do what they want. But TikTok used our system to defend itself. Fair enough. Now they're trying to negotiate with the Treasury Department to come up with a system of checks and balances. But I'm here to tell you that I've covered several, several examples, dozens of examples of Chinese corporation negotiating these checks and balances arrangements with countries all over the world for lots of things, Huawei, you name it. And they're all nonsense. They're all useless. They all end up being immediately violated because the Chinese Communist Party doesn't respect the word of that. And even if the companies are in good faith, they don't have the ability to say no. You know, in our country, our tech companies cooperate with the government uh, to compromise the privacy of Americans way too much. That's my opinion as a columnist. I think that's a huge problem. But they have the option to say no. In China, you don't have the option to say no. They'll take your whole company and they'll throw you in chains or you'll fall off a wall or something, which is a real example. So the problem with talking about TikTok is we have to understand that over there, the companies work for the government, which works for the party. It's not, they have a different system and there's no way to siphon it off. So you're saying that when TikTok officials are testifying in D.C. and telling lawmakers, no, that information is secured on separate databases and those databases are in the U.S. and no Chinese officials have access to it, that's all BS. No, I'm saying there's two categories of BS coming from TikTok officials. One category is things that turn out not to be true that are like are found through leaked documents and leaked audio about the way that they're managing those conflicts. And so some of it is they're straight up lying and the reporting on that is really extensive, but they don't talk about the thing standing behind them, which is the party state, which doesn't care about any of that. Okay, and that's what happens when you try to negotiate with a Chinese conglomerate is they can't make those kinds of arrangements because they don't have control over their own company. The party does. And that's an unsolvable problem. At the same time, I don't think we can I don't think we'll be able to ban it. I don't think proliferation is that easy to 
put back in a box. I don't think you can take it off 200 million people's phones. I, I, I don't know that there's a good solution other than to solve the bigger problem, which is to regulate how Americans have rights over their data and transparency into their data so that it applies to all companies, you know, but that's, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. I was trying to think of there's a comparable example uh, because there's this ongoing negotiation uh, the, the head of TikTok, I think, is going to be at Capitol Hill March 23rd. So this is something we're going to be talking about these next few weeks. There's TikTok in Singapore, but then there's ByteDance in Beijing. Right. But that's um, a distinction without a difference, you know? And, yeah. And, and it's it's a common strategy of Chinese corporations uh, to create uh, foreign subsidiaries to absolve themselves of responsibility, accountability, and legal liability. It's a huge problem. It, it, it exists in almost every industry. So, you know, again, they use our legal systems against us. And we can't use their legal system. You're not going to sue. What are you going to do? Sue, sue ByteDance in Beijing? Good luck with that. And so this is, a, 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 a again, a huge imbalance in the structure of the U.S.-China relationship that you have to talk about if you want to understand what's going on with TikTok. You have to understand that Chinese companies punish U.S. companies. Remember the NBA when they, one guy tweeted one thing about Hong Kong and they took the NBA off the air and they shut down it. They cost them $400 million for one tweet. That was one tweet, you know. And TikTok is doing all this stuff, lying to, like, Again, I'm not accusing them of lying to Congress. I'm pointing to the record and saying they clearly lied to Congress. And, you know, you look at that and and there's there's very little about it. Now, now we, there's advantage to our system is that people have a right to defend themselves. But at what point do you understand that we're facing a unique and complex threat and that the Chinese Communist Party uses its companies and its technology to influence us? It's not illegal. It's not like spying, right? The balloon espionage is spying, right? You have the state media, which is sort of like soft power from China. Fine, fair enough. At least that says state media on it. This is the middle ground. This is where the action is in the U.S.-China relationship. This is what my book is about. It's about the stuff that's not spying. So it's not illegal. It's not It's not open. They're not doing what they're saying they're doing. It's right in that gray area. And that's what the Chinese do best of all. And they do it through a network called the United Front. And the United Front dates back to Maoist times. And Mao described it as his magic weapon, Okay. And he described it as meant to fight the party's enemies by using the party's friends. And the United Front is a network all over the world, by the way, which, again, it's not really a U.S. problem. Fifty countries have United Front operations, multi-billion dollar operations that work through proxies. Those proxies are corporations, they're foundations, universities. They fund a ton of universities. They are aided by fellow travelers like Wall Street firms that do their accounting and launder their money and send American investment money back into Chinese tech companies to build the machines that are pointed at us. So if you think about the capital markets, we're sending all of our pension funds and our investment dollars into companies like ByteDance. Why are we doing that? Oh, because Wall Street firms like Bloomberg, Barclays, and FTSE Russell, and MSCI, and Goldman Sachs, and PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Ernst Young are making money off of that on both ends. And it's a pyramid scheme. It's a house of cards, in other words, because as the Chinese Communist Party becomes more uh, socialist, more nationalist, more, more totalitarian, they're taking our money and then they're going to cut off the spigot. And then what do we have? We have we just you bet our future on the success of the Chinese Communist Party. And that makes it a, a lot harder to fight in our politics in our society, but stop me when I'm rambling. Just quickly back to TikTok. For yeah, anybody sorry. who's listening. You got me off. No, you got no. me started. <laughs> For anybody who's listening and they're thinking, I have TikTok. What do I go on? I So I record myself dancing to a, to a song. I mostly just watch cooking videos or this, that, and the other thing. What is the big deal? I don't even care if China has this information. A, what could China possibly be doing with that information that's nefarious? 
And B, isn't there also, what, what can they be doing in terms of tweaking the algorithms? And, and, you know, we've 60 Minutes did this whole report about how China has a different version of TikTok that they feed the Chinese population versus what they feed the West, the United States and other Western countries. Like they say they have basically the spinach version and they're giving us, you know, the crack for lack of a better word in dance videos over there, they're getting science experiments and stuff like that. Right. So can you talk a little bit about what is the harm for anyone who's listening? Who's like, I don't even care. I like my TikTok. Leave me alone. Right. Zuckerberg has my info. Tim Cook has my info. Jeff Bezos has my info. What's China? Well, you know, okay, let me ask the answer the last part of your question first. And this might uh, resonate with you two as social media news personalities. You know, the fastest growing news consumption is on TikTok by far. Okay. And while I, as a, uh, I don't claim to have my finger right on the pulse of the Gen Z community, what limited extent I uh, and exposure I do have, and through my own research, just like spending a lot of time reading news on TikTok, it's ballooning. It's huge. Okay, so there's going to be an entire generation of Americans whose primary news source is TikTok, the way Twitter was or Instagram was before it, the way Facebook was before that, the way newspapers were before that, and controlling that spigot especially if you're doing it in a corrupt way for a political agenda, is a huge, huge problem. Now, again, I'm not absolving Facebook or any other social media company for what happened in 2016. And did did we encourage the disinformation or did they, was that, is that just free speech? I'm not trying to go down that rabbit hole at this moment, although I will if you want me to. What I'm trying to say is something very specific, which is that the people who work at TikTok, who control those decisions, Hundreds of them came from the Chinese Communist Party propaganda machine. Okay, these are human beings. And this is not speculation. This is not some phantom threat of, oh, they're going to use their dance video when you go to get confirmed to be Secretary of State. Here comes you doing the, the embarrassing dance. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact, the reported fact that hundreds of the people who are working for TikTok came straight from Chinese state media, Chinese state propaganda, their ministries. They, they're party apparatchiks. They didn't take off. Again, we don't understand that in China, there's 90 million people in the Chinese Communist Party, 90 million out of 1.5 billion, let's say. That's a lot of people. But those are the most ingenuitive, smart leaders in all of these places in China. This is this is their bureaucratic, technocratic aristocracy. That's the party. That's what it is. And you don't just take off that hat when you go to work for TikTok. That's what you are for life. You're a member of the party. Okay. Again, we don't have that. You can be a Democrat and then you go work for Instagram. You're not doing the bidding of the Democratic Party in all cases. Are there exceptions? Maybe. Okay, let's be honest. But like, that's not your job. In TikTok, you're a party member. You're a party member. That's it. So they they fill that the content uh, parts and the public facing parts with these types of people. Now, what do you expect is going to happen? That news spigot is going to be manipulated in nefarious ways for the advantage of the country that's trying to influence us. And now, again, is, is all of that. Do- it's hard to document when it's all secret. Sure. But that's why I, I argue for transparency rather than bans, because if we keep banning things, we become the thing that we're fighting a closed society. Right. We're defending an open society system. That's what I love. I like our way of life. OK. And I respect the Chinese people. And I don't think that we should change the Chinese government. I don't think that we should try to. I don't I don't think we can. I don't think it's our something that we have the ability to do. I think that was part of why we got into this mess in the first place is because of our hubris, because while well, the China hand class that has been managing U.S.-China relations since about 1972 professes to be you know, so skilled at this, what they've actually done is 
made a foolish bet, which is that we could change China to be like us. No, that bet failed. It should be obvious. Everyone should be able to admit that these people can't. You know, the old people in the U.S.-China community can't admit that their career effort, which was to make China into a liberal Jeffersonian democracy or something thereabouts, or at least like halfway, like, I don't know, Singapore or something like that, it failed. The Chinese went a different way for a lot of complicated reasons. But we can't ignore that. We can't look at that and be like, that didn't fail. We have to adjust our policy and our strategy to respond to the reality of the world that we're in. The reality of the world that we're in is the Chinese Communist Party that's a genocidal, totalitarian, expansionist, aggressive party state that means us harm, that is, is not actually interested in the peaceful rise that they profess to be interested. And the way that we know that is because that's what they say when they're talking in their own language to their own people. All right. We're talking to Josh Rogan of The Washington Post here on All Things China. We'll have much more of our conversation just after the break. All right. We have another amazing deal from our other sponsor this week, Bull & Branch Betting and Sheets. They're extending their special deal for Mo News listeners. Bull & Branch took notice uh, in the fall as we had a discussion about top sheets versus duvets. Uh, and they were really excited about um, how passionate the Mo News community is about uh, a good night's sleep and their uh, sleep arrangements and their bedding. And so they're offering right now Mo News listeners 15% off plus free shipping for a limited time with the promo code Mo News. My wife Alex and I got a full set of their sheets in the fall, sleeping on them nightly. They get softer with every wash. A reminder, we literally spend a third of our lives in bed, at least we should, eight hours a night. So sheets are a very big deal. A reminder again on the deal, for a limited time, get 15% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use the promo code Mo News over at bullandbranch.com. That is Bull and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D-Branch.com, promo code MoNews. It's fascinating to just see the evolution because we almost marked it based on the last two Olympics that were held in China. Where we were in 2008 vis-a-vis China, the opening, or at least we thought, and then where we were with the most recent Olympics and seeing the progression, seeing what happened in Hong Kong, seeing what's happening out in Western China. What is China's ambition, Right. Give us a sense based on your reporting. What are China's goals here? Because, you know, the last time we were familiar with the sort of bicameral world, it was the U.S. versus the Soviet Union. We had the Cold War. They had their territory. We had our territory. And, you know, if we lost a country or they lost a country, it was a big deal, right? Every single country in the world mattered. Are you going to their team or our team, their team or our team? Then we sort of had, you know, a moment in time in the 90s uh, where it was just us, just the U.S., knowing that China would strengthen over time. What are China's goals? writ large, beyond the domestic? It's such an essential question, and it's it's not a question that we can say there's any consensus on in the Western world, to be sure, but I'll give you my take on it for what it's worth. We have a very simplified China debate in Congress and in, in Washington, especially, which is like, do you want a Cold War? Don't you want a Cold War? Oh, some people want a Cold War. No, I don't. Why would you want a Cold War? Let's avoid the Cold War, okay? And that is like basically stupid because, first of all, the Cold War is a thing in history, and this is something different, okay? It's a different country. It's a different century. Now, there are some lessons to be learned, I think. There are some parallels, to be sure. The idea of having two superpowers that are, like, careening towards conflict and would like to find some sort of off-ramp offers some model for a system of, like, you know, Soviet-style detente and negotiations and mutually reinforcement binding agreements and all of the alliance building that went into making our position in the Cold War something that could outlast the Soviet Union until it folded upon its contradictions. But the problem with the analogy is twofold. One is 
in my view, is that the Chinese Communist Party is much, much more powerful, much, much richer, and much, much more ingrained into our lives and the lives of every person in the world than the Soviet Union ever was. In other words, it's a much more formidable foe. Okay. And we can't isolate China. You know, the Soviet Union, all, nobody knows how we won the Cold War. It's probably a combination of factors. But one of the things we did is we cut off their funds. We can't do that with China. They've got, they're going to have the biggest economy in the world. Countries all over the world, that's their number one trading partner. So it's not realistic. It's, it's look how the sanctioning on Russia is going. It's going mediocre. You can't do that to China. So for a number of reasons, a much more difficult problem. It's not a military problem. It's a economic and technological and ideological competition foremost. So it, just because they're communists doesn't mean they're like the Soviet communists. Remember that whole, you know, Nixon thing? Like they hated each other. They have two different philosophies and they're not interested, at least at, th at this time, it seems pretty clear from what just happened last week. Let's take this as a data point, not a, a, a full conclusion, but a data point in my argument that they're not in a peaceful rise kind of mood. Now, there's two ways that we can deal with that. We could ignore the growing problem and allow their aggression and expansionism and genocide and just let them take Taiwan and, you know, forget about the people in Hong Kong, tell the Uyghurs they're on their own and all of that. We could do that. That's an option that we have. But my argument to Americans in both the right and the left is that those chickens will come home to roost and that history should have taught us that aggressive totalitarian genocidal dictatorships expand until confronted. And that actually the best way to avoid conflict with China is to respond to their aggression by increasing our deterrence so that uh, we keep uh, whatever uh, uh, thoughts they might have of pushing past our limits to themselves for as long as possible. You know, And that essentially is a containment strategy. And then when you say containment, you think, oh, well, isn't that what we did during the Cold War? Kind of. But here's the thing, Mo, and this is what's really important to remember, that a Cold War is not the worst scenario. What's the worst scenario? Hot war. Exactly. The hot war. So that's what we're trying to avoid, really. And if, you know, we have this crazy thing in Washington where we think if we just craft the right policy, that everything will be OK, that we just have to get a bunch of like officials and we'll get some maps on the table. We'll game it out several times. We'll put the pundits on TV. We'll come up with this nuanced, beautiful policy. And then the threat will go away. But sometimes the best you can do is rally with your friends and allies to protect yourselves and to show the bully that, hey, you better not try anything too crazy because we actually mean what we say and say what we mean. According to what Xi Jinping says and writes, okay, this is according to the man who's increasingly a totalitarian leader in that country, president for life, purged all the opposition, all the dissenters are gone, surround himself with yes men. His goal is the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, which he defines as China being the most powerful country on the world and able to set the standards and conditions in the world to facilitate China's continued existence as the most powerful country in the world. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to control every country. That doesn't mean they want to control every country. It means they want to dominate their region and then be the standard setters. In other words, we have a system of norms and laws and multilateral organizations and understandings and treaties that has underpinned relative, relative peace and security in the world since, let's say, the end of, I don't know, the Vietnam War. And that is a shaky system. They want a different system. They want a system that makes the world safer, autocracy and repression. They want to redefine things like human rights, trade, you know, governance and democracy. Why do the Chinese call themselves a democracy? Ever wondered about that? You know, what I mean, have you like all the like they 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 always say our democracy is so messy and it's a terrible system. And but they they still say that they're a democracy. Why are they doing that? Because they want to define democracy to fit the legitimacy of themselves. So their goal is their survival and their prosperity. Again, not of 
just of China, of the party itself. And that's what Mao set in motion. That's what Xi Jinping is meaning to do. And all he did was hit the gas, he hit the gas in a big, big way, because he knows that once the international world community responds is woken up to this fact that we actually have the inherent advantage. We have the high ground because our open system is better because people, if they don't have a gun to their head or a minder behind their back, prefer to live in a society where you can go out into this town square and criticize your government without getting beat up or thrown in jail or worse. Okay. And that is essentially the the struggle of humankind in the 21st century is for, not for democracy per se, but for agency, for dignity. Okay. And we see that in the Middle East. We see that in Ukraine. We see that in Tibet. Everywhere, the forces of repression and autocracy have been on the march, and we're seeing the reaction. And the goal for the Chinese Communist Party is to hit the gas so they can control what they need to control in order to do what they want to do, to have, it's a systems battle, so that their system becomes the world system, not our system. I like our system. I like freedom, democracy, human rights, the ability to have a podcast and say that the Biden administration did the wrong thing or the right thing uh, without getting that knock on the door, okay? That's what I like, but that's just me. Okay, our thanks to Josh Rogan for his insights and analysis on the balloon, TikTok, uh, and all things China as we began this conversation. Again, this is part one. We will have part two for you tomorrow where we will go deeper into the history, including our question, what did Trump get right and what did Biden get right when it comes to China and what did both get wrong? I think you'll be uh, very interested in the answers there. Thanks to uh, Rogan, who has his book out. Reminder, it's called Chaos Under Heaven, America, China and the Battle for the 21st Century. You can also follow him at Josh Rogan, J-O-S-H-R-O-G-I-N over on Twitter. And he mentioned that Instagram account. We've linked to it in the uh show notes where he talks about all things watches and ramen. So if you're looking for something different beyond China there, a reminder to follow or subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you listen to us on and leave us a review. Reviews matter. They're very helpful. So appreciate all of you who could leave us a uh, review. It helps us grow the program. A reminder to also follow me over on Instagram at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H. Jill and I will be back tomorrow with part two of the Rogan interview, as well as your daily Mo News edition. Thanks again for listening.